This is Rooster Radio with Andrew Montesi and James Begley. Today's guest is one of the most influential people in art. Nick Mitsevich is the head of the Art Gallery of South Australia. He's put the gallery and the state on the map with his innovative and sometimes controversial approach. Sometimes art and controversy go hand in hand and Nick talks about the importance of walking this fine line. His approach though is extremely inclusive. Gone is the stigma of snobby, arty people. He's opened up art to everyone and shares how he wants the public to engage with art. Nick has a huge vision for the future and arts entrepreneurship. He's come a long way as the son of farmers in rural New South Wales who had no interest in art. Nick talks about how he discovered it and travelling hours just to get to the nearest gallery. This interview is brought to you by Pixstar and Carpe Coco. Pixstar is the place to connect with high-profile people for any commercial engagement or experience you can imagine. Guest speakers, ambassadors, just about anything. Pixstar works fast with any budget. Register your opportunity at pixstar.com.au. Carpe Coco is a new startup providing express delivery of beautiful premium chocolates. Check out carpecoco.com. That's C-A-R-P-K-O-K-O.com. You'll be amazed. Enjoy our chat. Nick, thanks for joining us on Rooster Radio. Great to be here with you. Um, I'm going to kick off with a fairly broad question. How do you describe art to a couple of guys who don't know much about it? Um, It's kind of easy, I think, um, because art actually isn't complicated. Art is, um, really simply, the expression of one individual or a group of people uh, about something they're passionate about in the world at a particular time and place. And um, art in the 21st century can kind of be anything an artist wants it to be. It could be a painting, it could be a photograph, it could be a soundscape, it could be a sculpture, it could be just an environment. But the form's not that important. What is important is that it's a authentic... Uh, view of the world and the concerns that an artist has and if they're a great artist or even a good artist they uh, have an effective quality in communicating that with the wider audience and so what artists try to do is talk about how they see the world and in doing so connect with you and connect with your concerns and um, if you look back through history that is the link that, that builds on art. It's really simple. It's not complex. And um, we might go into galleries and think that you don't know anything about art, but in actual fact you know a lot because you have an opinion about the world you live in, you have uh, views on history and the past, and all of that helps you in um, trying to navigate your way through an art gallery. What a beautiful answer that's incredible I don't think I've ever heard it explained to me like that and do you get sick of people saying oh I don't know much about art or I don't know much about painting so you know I'm not sure whether I should like this or not does that ever bore you not at all because uh, my job is to communicate um, the strengths and the importance of art in our lives and um, I I've chosen to do that for the last 30 years and um, you know there's so much uh, that you can help people with. And um, galleries are not storehouses for pictures. Galleries are actually places where the intersection of art and the audience comes together. And so if people don't ask me that question, I'm actually... I'm bored. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to have that question yeah. to do my job properly. Cool. So then, I guess building on that, as an art gallery director how how do you want the public to engage with your art how how should the average joe come and get involved um they should walk through whatever door they feel comfortable with so what we try to do here is give people multiple um opportunities for involvement so you could be really passive and literally just wander around and not ask questions Um, You could become involved and sit down and make something as a response to being inspired by something you might see. 
you might come to a talk and hear an artist talk about their vision for art or their views of the world. Um, you might join a program where we teach you about the history of art. Um, you might um, just choose to photograph your favourite things and put them up on Instagram and curate your own special view of what you think is good. Um, you might choose to tell some friends about it and have a discussion about it. You might choose to sit down in the cafe and um, talk about your favourite things or the things you didn't like. So um, I don't want to prescribe how anyone might approach art, but what I want to do is give them lots of doorways or options or gateways for their involvement. So, um, you know, on Friday nights we're open till 9pm and if you've got no time to come to the gallery through the week or the weekends because you might be working and on the weekends you might have sporting commitments or family commitments, um, that's an important gateway for us for people that may not be able to visit regularly or may not know anything about art. And so you can have a drink, you can listen to some music or you can listen to people talk or you can just kind of enjoy the calamity of a thousand people being here. <laughs> um, or you can just take lots of Instagram shots and <laughs> post and curate your own evening online. So um, I, I, my role is to be the facilitator to create, the maximise um, your opportunities here. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts. One of the things that strike me with your more traditional art galleries is I always forget that it's kind of free to walk in and have a look. And I don't know whether that's because of the, the formality of the building and whether or not it feels like it's sort of out of reach. Mm. But you talk about opening doors. What responsibility does even just the physical building have to engage people and make them feel comfortable with engaging? In art? Um, I think you, there's a really important point there. Um, many of our galleries are in 19th century bits of architecture that were built like kind of storehouses or fortresses and so um, we're at times working against um, uh, that 19th century approach to what art was for select few and art was uh, a privilege, but it no longer is. And um, one of our challenges working in a 19th century building is to try to break down those barriers. So the way that we try to do that is the... Um, eclectic nature of our artistic program, the fact that we offer lots of free things for kids, um, free things for teenagers, and we have um, an active engagement strategy for both retired people or working people. So um, we can't actually change the building fabric at the moment when we've got plans to. Um, if I had my way, I'd get a big, gigantic... Um, can opener and literally just prise open the front of the building <laughs> and make it transparent um, because every day I sit at the front of the gallery um, and just watch hundreds of people walk past and um, if we could only connect with some of them I think their lives could be so much more um, so much more richer with art um, so I'm always working against architecture I Without going too much into art history, it does fascinate me a little bit. You said that's sort of very much a 19th century approach to it. What was it like? Was it always an elitist um, out sort of pursuit or, or, or did that evolve? Well, I think, um, you know, um, art comes from... Um, well, art serves many different purposes over time. Um, you know, in ancient Egypt, it was about ritual. It was about power. Um, it was always about expression, but they were the things that were driving it. Um, you know, in the Renaissance and um, uh, up to the sort of 19th century, it was the domain of religion, uh, telling stories about uh, belief. And um, then it became more about um, wealth, and collecting and possessions, um, sometimes about politics. Religion and politics in history is very linked. Um, but what's so amazing um, in the, from the latter part of the 
the 19th century and the 20th century, now the 21st century, art is about personal expression, connecting people together, expressing one's views about the world. Overtly, it is political because their views, sometimes those views are personal, sometimes they're about issues that face us as a community or as a nation, um, but it's always about connecting with people. And so I'm, I'm, I'm so excited about art in the 21st century uh, being, the, being a voice that most of the time is liberated from the static of um, uh, vested interests and uh, propaganda. Art itself can be propaganda, but um, I think that if you rely on the mass media and you rely on um, the things you might read um, in the mainstream press, um, you might get a skewed view of the world. However, if you look at the way that artists might approach the world, I think you get a fuller view of the world, and that's the exciting thing about art in the 21st century that differs from art in the past. Mm. So on that, over the course of your career and over the last 30 years, as you've said... What has been perhaps some of the pieces that have been most memorable or um, have had the biggest influence on you personally? And and why? There's lots. There's lots and lots and lots. Um, You know, I remember when I was uh, 12 or 13 and I went to the Art Gallery of New South Wales and I saw this amazing exhibition called Gold of the Pharaohs and I wasn't there for a art experience. I was there because I was a history student and I loved history. And I wanted, when I was 12, I wanted to be a film director or an archaeologist. Um, and I was there and I saw this amazing show called Gold of the Pharaohs. And I just was so um, wrapped in how it was this amazing vignette into the past and history and how people lived. And that's a really memorable experience for me. And um, I could see that art was this amazing time capsule that could take me to all these different places. And um, I grew up on a farm in regional New South Wales. We kind of didn't have any art in our world. Um, And uh, art became this magical thing that could transport me to any place in the world. And I became, from that point, became fascinated with art history and because it kind of gave me an insight into other worlds and um, it was really memorable and I still can't forget that moment. I still really remember it. Um, And there's been many, many other memorable moments but they're always about providing something to my world that I've not been conscious of. So it's always about opening a door that um, I didn't think existed and um, that's when art for me is at its best it kind of connects with you and you know 99% of the time doesn't happen Mm. but there's that 1% of the time and that 1% is so potent and so rich and so engaging that um, it keeps you looking Mm. and thinking and feeling and they're the things that I think are the most important when it comes to learning about art, thinking, feeling and looking. And um, you don't need to know about history or you don't need to know about um, a textbook version of art. You just need to be focused on those three things. Were you conscious at that point? Oh, you're conscious. Of course you're all conscious. Were you aware, <laughs> when you walked in as a 12-year-old, were you aware at that point in time that, that of the significance of what you were feeling? And, and then once you had that, like, who supported you? And who, if you're not necessarily going to get it from your parents, who, who fostered this love of art beyond that first experience? Um, I don't think I was conscious at all. Um, <laughs> I was always hungry for things. And, um, uh, yeah, I think... It's now with 30 years of hindsight that I think that that's a really sliding door moment Mm. for me. Like, if I didn't go on that history excursion, maybe I wouldn't be sitting here today um, being the custodian of this amazing gallery. Um, I think that um, 
I was really self-motivated. Um, no one in my world really was interested in art. Um, you know, when I got home that day, I remember getting out... Um, uh, we had this set of encyclopedias at home and I got up and I looked up ancient Egypt and I read all about it. And um, for my birthday, I asked my parents for a, a book on ancient Egypt and I got that. And um, I was always very self-motivated and um, even though there was no one in my world that was interested in art, it didn't really affect me at all. Um, I used to catch the train to the Art Gallery of New South Wales and go and see exhibitions there um, uh, when I was a teenager and I had to catch three trains to get there and kind of would take four or five hours to get there and I was there for you know, a couple of hours and then four or five hours on the way back. Um, and just the drive of the power of learning more about art was the only kind of support I needed. It was, that, it was, it was an integral thing and um, I think that regardless of uh, what the subject matter is in the world, if you connect with something, um, you are just, you become quite obsessed by it. And um, some people, like I've got friends that are like that about sport. Um, I've got friends that are like that about fashion. Um, I've got friends that are like that about medicine. And um, they kind of share the same obsessive compulsive behaviour to immerse yourself in something that you connect with. And it's about something that I don't think any of us can define. And how was your interest in art received by the people around you? Because, you know, I remember back in school, the artistic people were always seen as a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, how did that sit? Oh, um, I think, you know, my love of art meant that I was um, defined as a freak at my high school and um, a second-class citizen because it was both... Um, it wasn't. It wasn't something that was part of the local community that I grew up in. Um, you know, I sh- should have played rugby league or um, cricket. Um, maybe I did play both of them, but I didn't really enjoy them. But um, I should have been involved in those things. So, um, you know, interestingly, growing up in a, a sort of country town, um, you were kind of put in a category. Um, and people, you know, accused you of being um, like a bit of a freak and mm. a bit feminine and um, there were derogatory terms that were kind of um, woven around that. But you know what? It kind of didn't bother me, you know? I kind of didn't mind being defined like that. It was... It was, it was I was benign to it. Mm. And so I guess build on that, um, I'd imagine that... Well, how was... How was art taught, if at all, in school? And then further, what are your thoughts on the way that art should be taught? Um, well, um, at that time, which was in the sort of early 80s, um, uh, in the 80s, um, art um, was kind of like an elective. It was like something that wasn't part of the core. And um, I was very fortunate. I... Um, I struck gold with a number of um, art teachers that were passionate about teaching kids about art and um, um, they could see that I was really interested and, um, you know, lent me books and showed me things and um, that inspired me. And, you know, I think sometimes if you encounter uh, passionate teachers in your world, they make such a big difference and I think that's why education is so important. And... um, you know, at the time, uh, art was very much an elective and um, I, um, I just threw myself into that elective and treated it as if it wasn't an elective, that it was something that was integral and core and as important as English and maths. And, um, you know, I, that's one of the philosophies that I bring to the Art Gallery of South Australia, that learning about art is really about learning about the world. It doesn't mean that you'll become an artist. Like, I never, ever thought that I'd become an artist. Never. I just knew art was really important in our lives, in our society, and so um, I try to create as many opportunities here at the gallery to learn about the notions of what art is. And so, you know, if we just sit here, art affects everything about um, what we're wearing, how we look, 
um, the technology and the packaging around this microphone that I'm talking into. So um, learning about art isn't about being an artist. It's about learning about creativity, about problem solving, uh, about communicating. And those things have such a profound effect on our daily lives. And um, uh, I think that's why education and having art and culture and your ability to express oneself as a core part of learning is something that I think the um, educational structures in the future will wake up to. Some are, and creative learning is a, an important part of some innovating teaching practices, and um, I'm really heartened to see that happen. It feels to me that art has this beautiful opportunity because everything that you've communicated to this point, and you'll have to um, fill me on the third, but you know, you think, you feel... And you see. And you see yeah. is kind of the antithesis of productivity, and, and the art is one of the few things now that isn't about achieving something necessarily, like tasks ticking off. And, and our world now is so full of doing mm-hmm. that experiencing art is actually the other end of the spectrum. Just separate yourself from all this and just experience mm-hmm. it. Would you... What are your thoughts? Um, well, I think the most creative individuals in our world are the most productive. So if you just take a superficial approach, the most successful new companies in the world, the most successful individuals in our world are the ones that have innovative, creative thinking at their core. But just, I mean, people feel guilty for, say, let's say you might go and just spend 30 minutes in an art gallery during a work day. No one would see the connection between them becoming more productive and actually better in their job and taking just some time out to be. Um, so I'm just wondering that, that... Oh, I, I think that's a kind of... I think that's a very old-fashioned approach to things. Like, let me, Can I give you a good mm. example? We've got a new neighbour across the road on North Terrace here in Adelaide. They're called Australian Fashion Labels. Mm-hmm. And they're an amazingly... Uh, successful and motivated company. You know what they do most lunch times? They walk across the road and they bring their staff with them because um, they think that um, just a few minutes in this building unleashes different kinds of thoughts and creativity and possibilities and um, yes that company is very aligned to art um, because fashion and art have some synergies but it's it's a good example mm. that um, uh, I think that um, you know Apple wouldn't be successful if their products weren't so obsessed with aesthetics mm. um, you know all art doesn't have to be about beauty but there is an element of it mm. and um, Apple and its beautiful products that um, that um, we all use um, wouldn't exist without art. So what you do is very much all about education and teaching people. But if if what I read is correct, you you actually attempted to be a school teacher at one point. I was. I was for nine weeks, four days. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I finished studying art history, um, I thought, oh, look, I like talking about art. So I thought, oh, maybe... Um, I should do something and um, my trajectory was to become a farmer and take over my parents' farming business um, to their um, distress that never happened but I thought, okay, I need to make a living somehow and I thought oh, look, I like talking about art, I like interacting with people so I'll become a teacher. So I studied and um, learnt to be a teacher got my um, degree in teaching after I finished art history um, and then I went to um, a regional community to teach and um, I kind of worked out that teaching was only one part of the thing I loved and I needed more. I was just kind of hungry for more. So um, on the last day of first term I had a job interview and um, that was the end of my formal teaching career in the classroom. But ironically, um, all of the skills I learnt as a teacher, I use every single day in this job with either staff, 
with supporters, with benefactors, with artists or visitors to the gallery. And um, ironically, I am just a teacher <laughs> in this job. And um, I went on to work for the Ethnic Communities Council as an arts officer. And I really learned a lot in that job because you worked with grassroots um, ethnic communities. And I come from um, an ethnic background, my parents being Greek and Macedonian. And so I had an affinity for sort of ethnic communities and um, really enjoyed um, working in that the scope mm. of um, uh, arts practice and um, then made my, made my way into the extraordinary world of the art gallery and mm. I've never been able to leave it. I mm. never will. I can see myself being like one of those um, eccentric old directors that <laughs> dies in their office and they have to be carried out in a box. <laughs> so just on that, what was the catalyst then to bring you to, to South Australia, the art gallery here? How did that occur? Um, well, um, the art gallery of South Australia has this amazing collection and it is one of the few public collections in Australia that has extraordinary depth. So it has it has an encyclopedic collection of Australian art and a very eccentric collection of European art, um, a unique collection of um, uh, Asian history and Aboriginal art and also furniture and the decorative arts. So there's, a, there's only a couple of collections that are so dense with um, variety in, in Australia. So, you know, when this job came up... Um, I was um, encouraged to apply. Um, I like um, growing things and I like um, taking um, uh, collections and um, promoting them and um, uh, opening them up. And um, the right time um, happened to collide with me wanting to look for a new challenge. And um, the board of the Art Gallery of South Australia was really... Um, they were hungry to, to open up their gallery to a larger audience and hungry to um, take their gallery into lots of other areas that they hadn't worked in before. And they were, that was, it aligned with exactly my skill set and my interest. And so we made a great marriage. And I've been here now for six years and um, uh, recently signed a new um, five-year contract. And so I'm really excited about the strategic direction of where we're going for the next five years following you know unprecedented growth where we've doubled our audience um, where we have nearly 800,000 visitors and um, developed um, an array of ways that we engage with the public. At the time obviously quite a a young director uh, I was yes, I was the (laughs) youngest appointed to this institution. Okay absolutely. (laughs) Institution. So did that (laughs) create any barriers did it ruffle any feathers oh, look it was a total badge of badge of honor in some ways um, people here in Adelaide wanted progress and they wanted change and in some ways it made it easier because they they could they could say oh isn't he just crazy he's so young and crazy <laughs> and I, I, was, I was allowed to get away with so much more um, if I was as silver-haired as I am today um, I may not have been able to get away with it, but um, being fresh-faced and being someone that just kind of crash-landed in Adelaide gave me the scope to um, uh, ask questions, to uh, suggest at the time kind of ridiculous things that now kind of feel like they're the middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways it um, gave me greater latitude and because I was perceived to be young, um, people gave me a wide booth berth and um, I let, let me um, uh, try things that um, the institutions never tried. Mm. And look, we are going to, we, we will touch on very shortly on the future and, you know, the strategic direction. But one of the things that I'm always fascinated with, like, where do you start once you've sitting in your office, you know, your first day as in the top job, like, where do you begin? And also, what were some of those more controversial mm. um, suggestions or ideas or pieces mm-hmm. that, that you, you brought up? Um, well, I didn't start on the first day. I kind of started 
um, a while before then because um, you need to be able to have an insight in an institution. So I started, before my first formal day, I started months and months before formulating, thinking about. I did a few um, incognito missions here, <laughs> wearing a backpack and a, a cap um, and wearing a pair of shorts and coming here on weekends before my appointment was announced just to do my field research because I knew as soon as I was appoint- acknowledged as the new director... The way that people reacted to me in this institution would be different. And what did you notice? um, Well, I noticed that um, there was lots of opportunities to engage with an audience that that wasn't happening. And I noticed there was was extraordinary assets here that just needed to be turned on, um, needed to be dusted off and... um, uh, And I think coming in... And experiencing the gallery as an anonymous visitor was really important in um, putting yourself in the shoes of um, the general public that come in here. Um, and we still continue to do it, like our, our, our um, professional staff, um, regardless of their rank, uh, have a roster on the front counter to meet and talk to visitors. Mine's scheduled for next week, um, this month. Um, we all do it, and it's really important because, you know, we look after art here, but the main job is to look after the audience. Uh, everything is secondary to the audience because we're an art gallery, so we're the junction between art and the audience, and so... Um, it's important that the audience is first. And so, um, yeah, uh, I think I did lots of research before I came in. I did lots of little quiet trips here because I love... Um, well, no, I don't love. I I need to have a background in things because the more knowledge you have and the more um, you can um, look at actual facts, the better decisions you can make. And, you know, some people might look at the job of running the art gallery here as being something that's a bit fluffy, but I argue that it's serious, it's very analytical. Um, You have to be both an impresario and a very prudent manager. You have to be both extremely creative and... um, politically prudent at the same time so there's I, I, it's like a juggling act and so the best way you can make, well the best way I can make decisions um, is to be really informed and so my journey started way before sitting behind that desk mm. and the first thing I did was not sit at the desk <laughs> and um, uh, uh, the most important thing was to talk to all the stakeholders and get to know them and that's the visitors, the patrons the government that we work with, the state, um, getting to know the city. And um, I felt very welcomed by Adelaide, which was really amazing. And it's such a welcoming city. Uh, uh, The best way that I could move ahead was to get to know everyone, get to know their concerns and um, try to harness the collective from all of those different stakeholders. And so, you know, I think the joke, running joke, was that I actually didn't sit at my desk for the first two (laughs) weeks at all, like literally did not even sit down at the desk. Um, And these days still I sit at my desk between about uh, quarter to eight and quarter past nine, and that's my only time that I'm at my desk. And for the rest of the time I'm working with the staff, with artists, Mm. with patrons... Um, getting to know people like yourselves, talking to um, the public, um, because I'm the kind of glue that connects everybody, um, and that's a very important and serious job, and the best way I can do it is to be present. You've acquired some controversial work, so so it was said. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the process of acquiring these works, what you're looking for, how, how to go about it, and even um, some of the, perhaps some of the issues that might keep you awake at night in terms of 
what's the response going to be? Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, it's a big task to make a decision about acquiring works of art because they stay in the permanent collection forever. And generally we acquire works of art for at least um, 500 years. Like, we look at them and say, will this last for 500 years at least? It's a long-term it's investment. A, it's a very long-term <laughs> investment. It costs a lot of money to buy it. Um, we raise all the funds from private sources to acquire them. And then it costs to look after them. And uh, you've got a responsibility to um, art history because in some ways collections also contribute to the way that art history is recorded. And so, um, you know, you never go into an acquisition lightly. And what I've done is that look at what has been collected in the past because you want to build on the past. You don't want to um, take a U-turn or go down a path that doesn't make sense. So, you know, I've learnt about the collection and really interrogate where we've collected in the past. And the things that I add, I want to make sure it has some resonance to the past. And as you've probably seen from some of our new collection displays, um, half of our collection is not not displayed chronologically anymore. Mm-hmm. It's shown thematically. And so something that has a thousand years between it needs to be able to speak to it. So the things that I want to add to the collection hopefully speak to the past. I also am conscious of the national collection because in Australia we've got limited resources so you don't want to duplicate something that other galleries have acquired and I think it's important from a national perspective to bring new things into the country and new things from the audience regardless of the geography because it's much easier to borrow things and lend things across Australia than it is to bring something from Europe or South America. Um, And so it's important to think about that. And it's also important to think about where art's going. And so you never want to acquire something that is the middle ground because the edge always becomes the middle ground. And so if you acquire something that kind of sits in the middle ground, where will it go? Mm -hmm. It doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I'm always interested in chasing the edge because the edge is really exciting and that's where new things are being done and that's where uh, artists build on the past and that's where um, it becomes uh, the progress of art history. And so um, at times we acquire things historically to fill in a story. I don't want to use the word gap, but to connect things. So quite recently we acquired... Um, an Impressionist painting by the French master Camille Pizarro. Um, It was from 1886, and we paid many millions of dollars for it. And 384 benefactors contributed. Um, The reason that was an important picture was because um, we want to tell the story of... um, landscape painting and tell the story of why abstraction sort of happened. And abstraction and how artists moved away from subject matter happened because the Impressionists gave us permission to do that. And so to have a, 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 be- a beautiful example of Impressionism means that we can talk about everything that happened after it in a very succinct and focused manner. So sometimes doing that, buying things from the past is important. Uh, the thing that I'm most impo- in, you know, excited about is buying things on the very edge where you're not sure if it's actually art, where you're not 100% sure if um, it's, um, it's acceptable. Mm. And there's a number of works that fall into that category. Um, recently, um, we acquired a work by the Belgium artist Belinda Delbruckia called We're All Flesh. And... Um, the components of the sculpture are, are, are a big steel pole that's nine metres high and the second part is two um, sculptures made of resin covered in um, uh, tanned horse hides uh, that um, are intertwined in the shape of a horse hanging from the ceiling. Without the, oh, and I forgot to say the heads are missing. So it's quite a brutal mm. sculpture. It looks like a horse. It's made out of fiberglass. Um, 
and it's brutal because their heads are missing and they're hanging from this um, very industrial pole and people come into the space and they find it distressing. I find it distressing and when I, I made the decision to acquire the work, um, it didn't happen lightly and what was so powerful and compelling about this work was that it spoke about man's inhumanity um, in the world that we live in and um, it um, built on a number of historical works that we had about that very subject. And if you go in the room that the work is hanging in, there's 2,000 years of artwork that's about this very subject. And so you can see that throughout time, um, artists are very concerned in this issue. So there's a sense of continuity about our cultural concerns, be it 15th century Italy or um, uh, uh, the 20th century in London or um, uh, the uh, uh, 17th century in Japan. Um, culturally, we have this mm. continuing concern and that's very important that we, we continue to focus on that. So to live on the edge and to push the boundaries, we often talk about risk. How do you deal with the criticism that is naturally going to follow? Um, well, um, you think about it and you make a decision if the work sits within um, uh, a um, social and moral, moral um, envelope. Like, is this socially and morally acceptable for the wider community? We, I do seriously think about mm -hmm. that. Um, we make decisions about the 98% of our community and we generally don't make decisions about the 2%. Mm -hmm. We think about it and we try to engineer um, how we can best express uh, the work in its, in its most authentic manner. So education is the key. Putting things into context. So the Belinda Dobrukia We're All Flesh doesn't sit in an anonymous, neutral white box. It sits in a gallery that talks about the history of culture and the history of art so instantly we're trying to connect it to the past we're trying to put it within a context and then work on an education program mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, we think about should there be warning signs should we catastrophize this work should we startle people about it or should we let them um, explore it on their own um, how do we manage general visitors as opposed to school groups and there's different techniques and processes that one has to put in place and so all of those decisions um, are carefully um, taken into consideration. We don't always get things 100% right and um, there's always an opportunity to change things and to express things differently um, and when the work was first installed um, I did get some letters of complaint uh, and it's interesting now, after the work being there for now nearly three years, that um, it's a work that's kind of defined uh, the gallery and its uh, ability to uh, both be progressive and historically accurate. And it's a work that um, has encouraged more people to visit the gallery. Before... Um, the uh, gallery was um, installed in the manner it is now, about 20% of our audience walked through that room because we, we track our visitors. Mm. Something like 70% of our visitors now walk through that room. Wow. Uh, so the general public mostly um, thinks it's fascinating. Um, they don't all like it, but art in the 21st century isn't about likability. It's about expressing an idea and a principle that resonates with people. Um, I walk in that room and I'm still um, very moved by it. Um, and um, it's a confronting work. And um, I think that the world is a confronting place. Mm. And I generally argue that things on the 6 o'clock news are more confronting than things you might find in your local art gallery. Uh, what we try to do is have a sense of poetry, a sense of 
history and a, a sense of um, emotion mm. as well as provocation. Mm. I remember my, the first memory I think I have about art was when, I can't remember which, was it the, the gallery in Canberra paid a million bucks for blue poles, the Jackson Polo, and that was a like big deal, you know, like... You know, I was that I was probably ten or something, and that was the. But now that would just be seen as an essential part of that gallery, and so it's the middle ground. Yeah, it's now. the middle ground. Um, but if you bought some, like you know, when when the gallery acquired that picture, I think it is the most thrilling acquisition in the history of Australian art. Um, when that gallery bought it. It was the edge. Well, and if they bought something that was the middle ground, we wouldn't be talking no. about it today. And I, I had the fortune I, of. My first real experience with art was I travelled as a 25 year old, 20, 25 year around the world, and in America, and I had the chance of going to gallery after gallery, you know. And from afar, any of Jackson Pollock's work, you just it stood out, and it made it just made you feel something. And when you're being bombarded, your senses are overloaded by art. It had this ability to capture your imagination. And I think that's what great art's about. It's about shifting moments that shift your whole understanding about art. And Jackson Pollock is a great example of an artist that was uh, an important moment in history where it shifted what art could be mm-hmm. and it never was the same after that. We've talked a lot about now the foundations of your work here at the gallery and, and the successes. What's in the future? What's in store? What do we need for us to continue this momentum Oh, there's lots to do. Um, and um, I think um, after being here for six years, it kind of allows me to be more ambitious because I've built a staff of people that um, are brilliant thinkers now and um, they um, have the latitude to do lots of different things. Um, so, um, you know, we've, we're planning... Um, a new rehang of our collections. So in the next couple of years, everything that um, you visited will look different. And it's important that galleries are shapeshifters. Internally, we're continually changing. And our first big project is to rehang the story of Australian art. And um, traditionally, this gallery has um, had two approaches. We've um, installed um, the history of Australian art through a European, uh, white European lens. And then, at the end of it, we tack on a display of Aboriginal art. Mm. And it's not in keeping with the principles that we believe in. Um, And we will rehang the history of Australian art looking at both a European, white European perspective and an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, uh, uh, perspective. There, there's, there's lots of complexities here. Um, our Australian, our Australian history is brutal in the way that um, uh, um, European settlement changed this nation. And um, art and the stories it can tell are complex and um, dark at times. And so we're hopefully going to explore the complexities of Australia's history from a a white European perspective and an Aboriginal perspective. Our Aboriginal curator, um, Nikki Cumston, is working quite closely um, with our curator of um, white European art and um, we're uh, really excited about uh, the way the audience might respond to it. We don't want to um, confine Aboriginal art to one gallery anymore. Um, Aboriginal art is part of our culture. It is a rich definition of Australian art and we want to make sure that its dialogue is integrated into the stories we tell in a fulsome way. And so in about 12 months' time, you'll see um, our first um, really significant um, uh, structural change in the way that we tell the story of Australian art. 
and that's really exciting. Um, Aboriginal um, culture is very important to us. Um, last year we had the most successful exhibition ever being the Tarnandi exhibition. There was a survey of contemporary Aboriginal art and 320,000 visitors came to that wow. exhibition over the summer. The most successful exhibition we've ever mounted. Um, and we want to build on that as well. So it's important that we have uh, a really dynamic engagement with Aboriginal art. We're going to continue to develop um, the way that we um, reach out to kids. And um, uh, recently we launched a teenager program because last year we realised all the young kids that started with us five or six years ago were about to be teenagers. And we didn't want to just say, oh, we don't have programs for you. So we've just started a modest teenager program um, that's very focused on the 12 to 17-year-olds. And over the course of the next um, three years, we're going to really ramp that up and um, really uh, have a much more thoughtful approach to the way that we engage with our audience. Um, also, this year we've tested opening late on Friday nights and it's been a runaway success and so we have to see how we're going to translate being opened on the first Friday of the month to be open every Friday. So what I like to do is try things out. Mm. I like to test things. And as soon as those testing, little testing projects gain, grain, gain hold, we kind of inject them with um, uh, a lot of adrenaline and... and blow them up so um, I think that that's been a pattern of what we've done it's also one of our big strategic plans as a second site and you know this gallery is bursting at the seams both, both physically and um, with visitors yeah, What's the ratio of works that are on display versus storage? Uh, it's, it's kind of got to the point of being about one and a half percent and so we've got this amazing um, archive um, this amazing asset and so the whole idea of a second site is being able to use our gallery's collection to, um, for educational purposes for tourism purposes, for creative pursuits and so the, the, the big idea with um, our second site is to make the whole collection accessible mm. so at the moment our collection sits in an anonymous storehouse that the public can't visit and I think that's a huge missed opportunity. And we want to continually think about how the audience can benefit from our decision-making. And to conceive a second site for the gallery where the audience can see and get themselves involved in all of the collection is pretty exciting. So education and um, learning about art and experiences with art that are not the traditional gallery experience are the things that we're exploring. Um, and as well, to build in um, a contemporary gallery space because, you know, we're, we, we crowbar contemporary art here wherever we have a little spot because we actually don't have contemporary galleries here and um, really telling the stories of um, Australia are really important in that second site concept. So big kind of ideas and big plans and um, um, that'll keep me busy for at least the next few years. That idea, you know, when you talk about the uh, an audience being able to walk in and experience and seek and, and, and look at just about everything, is are you drawing from models that already exist in other places? Um, uh, I am drawing from, from some unique models but um, putting them together in a manner that's appropriate for Adelaide, that's appropriate for our collection. So I'm kind of um, pinching little bits, but putting them together into a mix that hopefully will be uniquely South Australian and uniquely Adelaide. Um, what I love about this city is it's this beautiful, bespoke, well-planned 19th century city with this underbelly of craziness and um, uh, uh, um, eccentricity. And, um, you know, if you drive an hour north of here, you hit a desert. Um, so there's lots of extremes about this state and this city and, um, you know, I've kind of tried to tap into those eccentricities and those things that make Adelaide unique um, to be an important element of, of the things that we've cherry-picked from other places. On your plans for the contemporary centre, education is obviously a huge part of the pitch. 
what's, I guess, the business case in an environment where there's high competition for funding? Um, how do you how do you pitch the business side? Um, um, well, the business side is really important, um, and the business side in um, new builds and infrastructure is really critical. Um, and um, you know, this gallery has demonstrated that um, tourism, interstate tourism, is a really important element of attracting people here. And what I think Adelaide needs most in this time of of, of economic transition the state is in is to give people reasons to visit here. And uh, we've demonstrated when we've done major uh, exhibitions that um, uh, the audience has has really responded from interstate. So, for example, when we did Turner from the Tate with the Tate Gallery in London, um, 35% of the audience was from interstate. So we brought um, 34,000 interstate visitors to Adelaide, and there's so many spin-off effects that that has. Um, with the recent Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art, 26% of the audience um, and the exhibition attracted 180,000 visitors were from interstate. And so we see um, that Adelaide Contemporary, which is the working title of the project, is really important in nurturing um, a great sense of local pride and local creativity. But equal to that, and an equal part of the business case, is that that this is a real, genuine uh, project that has tangible outcomes to attract tourists here, to have more seats on flights filled into this city, that that can fill more hotel beds and more restaurants. And what Adelaide Contemporary can offer is that we're open 365 days of the year. So in between the spikes that this city might have with its successful festivals, we can infill all of the gaps with having a program that lasts for a whole year. And um, we offer a counterpoint to uh, the spikes for like Worm Adelaide or the Adelaide Festival or the Fringe. Um, uh, We offer you know, um, tangible cultural product um, that, that can be promoted and can be packaged with um, tours to Kangaroo Island or tours to the Barossa, any number of things. And um, I think that's what our trump card is. And I think that's why Adelaide Contemporary has received so much momentum. And there's great exemplars around the world that we can look at as being um, important examples where cultural tourism and galleries are um, working hand-in-hand hand to help activate and enliven a city and giving a, giving a city um, another reason to visit it. You're so right. Having been away from Adelaide for 14 of 17 years and you come back last year, Adelaide can sort of promote itself with whatever label it wants, but what I see is this undercurrent of food and hospitality, entrepreneurship, and, and arts and culture, and and you know people are taking some great risks in that space, and 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 it just seems to me a great addition to what exists. You know, we don't need to go and say let's go and get sort of an industry or let's go and bring them to Adelaide. Like this is here now. That's right. And um, one of the other things that it does is that it gives confidence. So all the young or even not so young entrepreneurs that are trying things in Adelaide, um, this, the symbol of this is really important because in itself the ripple effect will be to encourage them to be more ambitious. And um, I think this state needs uh, important symbols of progress um, for its own well-being internally and externally um, because I think we're all weary of listening to the fact that we've got our unemployment rate growing and um, um, negatives about industries closing. I think what's super exciting is that there are these great opportunities that aren't traditional, that are um, at the grassroots, that are about the collective achievement. And, um, you know, we might have um, an industry folding, but there are there's a multitude of entrepreneurs that are wanting to take risks. And I think a project like Adelaide Contemporary is the um, energy pill to both motivate them to be more ambitious, but also motivate people 
both within the state and outside of the state, to think differently about the potential of Adelaide. So you feel like it's the perfect time then for something like this to be a bit different and to, what we always say, have a crack. Yeah, I think we need a big crack. And um, I was really... I think, you know, when, when, when you have no sense of certainty, what I feel you need to do is take the biggest cracks, to use your <laughs> phrase. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm willing to take a huge crack and... The thing is, we're not suggesting anything that hasn't been tested. Mm. Like, the last six years here, we've been testing so many things and we're just ready to, um, you know, blow it up and have a crack. Mm, Love it. Look, we are going to start to wrap up now, but just one question, one more question, I think, before... I've got one more as well. I'll hand... Okay. (laughs) Usually I'm the one with the last question. Um, Who's in our corner? So who are the people within this state, um, you know, at decent sort of seniority levels who are kind of in the trenches and, and willing to go out and fight and get this to happen? Well, I think, I think um, everyone I talk to um, that I meet um, is really enthusiastic. So I think um, there's, a, there's a general groundswell in the, in the wider community that Adelaide needs um, exciting things that are new. But also, you know, in the more formal structures, uh, the Economic Development Board here in South Australia, led by, um, chaired by Raymond Spencer, is a real great champion of this project. Um, And the Economic Development Board see that, um, you know, the growth of South Australia's prosperity is not necessarily linked to the traditional ways of doing business. And the things that you mentioned, like um, the, the sort of, the sort of cultural economy, the economy of experiences, is what this city is so ripe for and um, organisations like the Economic Development Board can see that. And, um, you know, the government is enthusiastic about this as well and um, fortunately they've given me some more money to explore this idea further and to be able to present it to them. So um, the government is looking for ideas and um, looking for opportunities and they're backing this um, in supporting it through the latest um, budget to give us some latitude to do some more work in this area. Um, And... um, uh, the 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 kind of groundswell I think is um, is becoming um, really palpable because um, we need big ideas mm. and um, I, I kind of want this to be the biggest idea that city's had for for a while. My final one is we've been talking about big ideas in the arts space. How do you define arts entrepreneurship? Well, it's about changing the way you do business and I think that's what's really important like um, three years ago uh, we decided not to hang our collection chronologically and for the last 129 (laughs) years before that we've hung our collection chronologically so we made a decision to do our business differently and 70% more people now walk through those gallery spaces and we've doubled our audience so we changed a business decision and it's had this extraordinary effect. Mm. So I think that's how I define, you know, being creative in that entrepreneurial space. Taking the way you do business um, into a new place, um, redefining the way business is actually undertaken. Um, and it's sometimes it could be a small thing. Other times it could be enormous. Mm. Um, Sometimes the effects of it, um, the effects of a small decision or a large one, sometimes the effect is the same. Mm. Like, we made a small decision because it didn't cost very much. Mm. It took a lot of time and we thought about it and, you know, ten of our curatorial staff were involved and um, eight of our installation staff and it took six months to do but it didn't cost much. Mm. And, uh, you know, changing how you might hang the collection. Wow. Small decision, enormous impact, but we changed how we did business. And so um, I'm always excited about other businesses and other people I meet that are creative entrepreneurs. And when I see them doing business in a, 
in a different way. I just think, oh, I love that, and mm. I get excited and inspired by it, and I come back and I think, okay, how can I do that part of our business differently? Mm. How can I change the way the industry might perceive this? We've got an idea for an installation, and we think we can have the world, the Guinness Book of Records for the world's longest podcast, continuous <laughs> podcast. So just a little room with some glass, and we'll go for a few days straight, and we think that could create a bit of buzz. Um, Andrew? I think so, but I guess a perfect way to wrap this up when we're talking about startups and mm. entrepreneurship and creatives is this blend of, uh, it all comes together with Carpe Coco, which is a good friend of ours, Jacob, who desperately sprinted these chocolates into the art gallery about five minutes before the interview started, which we would love to present to you, Nick, as a, as so a token of talk our Talk about aesthetics. I won't say no, because, you know, I'm a terrible sweet tooth. <laughs> awesome. And, and it looks totally beautiful. Um, so Jacob, and, who, who runs Carpe Coco, is a designer, uh, as you can tell by his packaging, which is inspired by Apple, which, you've, uh, which we've already discussed. You can slide it out here. I'm not sure if you had time to personalise. Oh, and it's... No, I didn't. Oh, and... Um, you can't go past a bit of gold leaf. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm addicted to gold leaf, and I've just opened the box, and there's this exquisite chocolate that's covered in gold leaf. So um, you can't get any better so than I, that. I rang, up, I rang up Jacob last night, and I said, oh, we forgot to discuss the next run of chocolates, but I think you're going to need to, to get them this here, is a good one. Uh, given it's the uh, an arts discussion. So thanks so much, Nick. We really appreciate it. My, my final uh, thanks, Nick, because... Whilst you talk about uh, feeling and experiencing uh, and seeing it, for me it's as much about learning about it and so to hear the echo of the kids' school groups outside and to get a sense of the history, your background, but also um, what you've done uh, with the gallery, I feel incredibly proud um, of what we're achieving in this space. So thank you very much and I can't wait to see what the future looks like. Thanks so much for your interest. Thanks for listening to Rooster Radio. If you enjoyed this episode and you're enjoying our show, make sure you rate us on iTunes and visit roosterradio.biz to sign up for events and news. Also join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roosterradiohq. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.